Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning, everyone. So what did the green grape say to the purple grape? Breathe. Takes you a while to get that one. I remember it was about 1981, fourth grade, I think, and uh, my school had a little bit of construction, and so they they built this mound of dirt, and it was about, I think it was about six foot high, it was about 20 feet in diameter, and so naturally, uh, what would a group of boys do during break, which we called recess, um, we played King of the Mountain. Pretty much every day at break, it was a sprint to King of the Mountain, and unfortunately, I never won. Um, they removed the mound of dirt by the time I got to be sixth grade, bigger than or bigger than the little kids, and that's my big regret in life. <laughs> Thank you for listening to me this morning. Um, for most of us, life can be a proverbial game of King of the Mountain. It's a contest to be king. It's it's a longing that we have as old as time, actually. Think about the places and the spaces in your life where you want to really be in charge and rule if everything could go according to your plans and your power. But because we are created in the image of God, we're made by a creator who has planted in us this need this longing for a father and a mother, a shepherd, as we heard in Jeremiah, and of course, as we see in the passages today, a king. We are a mixed bag of motivations. On one hand, I want a king to protect me and provide for me and to be in charge of this mess called the world and my life. But on the other hand, I find myself, and I think you can relate, pushing to the top of the mountain, finding my way at some clump of dirt to say I'm ultimately in charge and in control. Today is Christ the King Sunday, as Father Ben mentioned, and we have this insert that you can read about, but also this arrangement here to show us that Christ is the culmination and the summation of everything, as Colossians says. In 1925, the Pope at the time, saw the nations of Europe turning to the false promises of leaders and czars who would promise for them prosperity and protection. And they gave over power to these folks to their own detriment. And so the Pope at the time established in 1925 a yearly remembrance that most Christians around the world celebrate Christ the King Sunday to be reminded that it is Jesus Christ who is king and no one else. An old ancient promise turned into a modern celebration and feast for us. Something we remember today and this morning it's something we're going to be called to remember and again and again and again that our true allegiance and our true loyalty is to Christ our king and no one else. 
Let's pray, and then we'll look at the gospel lesson today. Lord Jesus, we worship you, and how our hearts found such great joy, singing out praises. For you alone are worthy of all of our praise and adulation. You are truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is in you that we find these deep longings, our desire for one who would protect us and provide for us and rule in us in such a way that is true and just and fair and beautiful. So this morning, may we not miss you in these passages, in these thoughts. And I pray that you would be honored high and exalted through my words, through our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 23. Luke, the gospel writer, one of the four gospel writers, records, as do all of the other gospels, this scene, the crucifixion of Jesus. Think about the implication that the Pope, who would want to remind the church in Rome, but of course all of us who look back at Christ the King Sunday, that he would choose this passage of Christ's crucifixion to do so. It's a particular story here. We see three criminals hanging on a cross, three men, three convictions, three crosses. Angela Kay and I um, went to Jerusalem a few years ago, and we saw firsthand where Golgotha was, or allegedly is. And um, it's like putting this crucifixion scene on Bryan Boulevard. So thousands of people coming into Greensboro or leaving Greensboro uh, would see. It's unmistakable. In Israel, the Roman leaders placed this crucifixion at the gate of the city. So everyone walking into Jerusalem or leaving Jerusalem would be reminded who truly is king. It's Rome. So these three crosses stand as a stark reminder for everyone in Jerusalem to see. And all three criminals are criminals in the eyes of the state. All three had been tried and convicted for claiming at some level or trying at some level to overthrow Caesar. But as you will see, all three have different trajectories. I'd like to put before you an outline for our time in Luke 23, and it would go this way. First, one criminal who embraced his cross and became king. Secondly, another criminal who rejected the true king. And thirdly, a man who saw himself as a criminal and came into the kingdom. Let's start with the first one. One criminal who embraced his cross and became king. I think one of the most remarkable things, maybe one of the most impressive things about Jesus was his willingness to submit to his own death. Listen to the gospel writer, verse 35. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and they mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was written a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. This notice was written in three languages. I'd like you to see it on the screen. It was written in 
Hebrew, it was written in Greek, it was written in Latin. It was an identifier that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And yet the rulers, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders objected. They objected to this sign and they wanted Pilate to rewrite it to say not the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate, in the great ironies of ironies, kept it up there. Think about this. The irony is that the title for Jesus, whom everyone rejected, actually became true. In Luke chapter 23, verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man. You brought him to me as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Think about the contrast. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting all the louder, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. All of Israel's history had been crying out for a king. Now the king that they really needed, their true king, they rejected there's this scene in Samuel chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the people come to the prophet Samuel, who's this major leader in Israel, raised up by God. They come to him and they're frustrated at Samuel and they say, give us a king. We want a king. And Samuel says to the Lord, I'm so frustrated that these people want a king. And this is this interaction between Samuel and God. It says in verse 9, God answers Samuel. He says, go ahead and do what they're asking. They are not rejecting you. They've rejected me as their king. From the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day, they've been behaving like this, leaving me for other gods. And now they're doing it to you. So let them have their own way. But warn them of what they're in for. Tell them the way kings operate, just what they're really likely to get from a king. This one little phrase just reverberates in my mind. They have not rejected you. They are rejecting me. During the t trial of Jesus, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him, it is as you say. And later, Jesus even says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom that I reign in is not of this world, and if it were so, my followers would come and fight you to save me. My kingdom is from another place. Mostly what I see in life, the pattern that plays out over and over again in every generation, in children and adults, is the game called King of the Mountain. Who's in charge? Who gets power? Who has control? 
and in much of our life is the quest for power. Now we would say, oh, but I'm just a simple person with no real spheres of influence and power. It doesn't matter if you are the smallest and the frailest of person or the mightiest of person. The quest for power is not just for celebrities or politicians. It's played out in our homes, in our businesses, in our schools, in our places of worship, and certainly in our government as we watch every two, four, and six years. It's all about pecking order. Thank goodness we have the great 21st century theologian George Clooney (laughs) who once said, there is a strange pecking order among actors. Theater actors look down on film actors who look down on TV actors. Thank God for reality shows, or we wouldn't have anybody to look down upon. There's pecking order in every system, in every sphere of influence. Um, Author Andy Crouch, who I really appreciate, who's such a great writer and communicator and thinker, says this in his book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Crouch says, Every idol makes two simple and extravagant promises. The first, you shall surely not die. And the second, you shall be like God. Let's consider this statement for a moment. Sorry, not this statement, but this text. Three criminals are being crucified for insurrection. Yet Jesus denies both the plain promises of power by enduring the cross willfully, obediently, joyfully. He willingly embraces it. He willingly submits himself to death. He takes on death and a cruel, devastating experience of it. And he confronts the wisdom of the world because he lets go of power and undergoes a very real humiliating death of a criminal. He lets go of power and suffers. Beneath the sign King of the Jews, Jesus is beaten, naked, bloody, and shamed. But I think the Christian should ask this, is he really? What kind of king were you looking for? What kind of king do you want to be in charge of your life and rule over you? What kind of power do you entrust your protection and your provision and your livelihood too. Let's consider the second person on the cross. This is another criminal who rejected the true king. Luke 23:39 says, "One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us." By the 4th century, Christian tradition has it that this man's name was Justice. G-E-S-T-A-S. And we don't know exactly his crime, and nor do we need to. But preachers from the past have called him the unrepentant thief. This is his name. In many ways, this man represents humanity without repentance. He represents us as we choose our own way. He represents the person who seeks to climb to the top of the mountain. He represents a person who thinks that the way to life is through power, 
Now, these things are written for our warning. This passage does bring to us a warning regarding this thief. His heart was hardened, and he missed the kingdom of God, sitting right beside him on a cross. Consider this scene. Three men are suffering, but this man suffers without humility. He suffers also without faith. Now, he couldn't have missed the way Jesus was dying. His gentleness, his meekness, his restraint. This, had man, this man had no sense of justice. His problem was that he got caught, not that he had a rotten heart. The tense of this phrase, hurled insults, is also in the plural. It means this man had probably been hurling insults at Jesus all day long. Why? With death so close, rather than seeking forgiveness, he doubles down on his guilt and he curses those around this man was truly guilty of no charity in his heart. His cross truly was his death sentence. On the other hand, there's the third man. This third man, whose name Dismas, which means sunset, ironically, saw himself as a criminal. In verse 40, he says to the, the unrepentant thief, he says, the other criminal rebuked him, the other thief, don't you fear God, he said, since we are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I've seen a few people pass from this life into the next. And I know it's true that in death, a person's true character revealed. Look at the three crosses. Look at the three men. Jesus is restrained and silent. He curses no one and he suffers with peace. And it was a tremendous amount of suffering. The second man, his hardened heart is on display as he leaves this world cursing and angry. And of all people, he curses Jesus who has done nothing and yet, this last man rebukes the second man, for as his life is fading away, he is staring at his own mortality. Talk about a deathbed conversion. Here it is. He asks two questions. First, he says to the other criminal, don't you fear God? I think this question could be rephrased this way. Are you not afraid? of your own mortality. Now, the older you get in life, the better and closer you get to understanding your own mortality. We celebrated Jim Wolf's birthday the other night, and he said, I almost have a perfect body now, meaning I'm a lot closer <laughs> to, to redemption <laughs> than you are. <laughs> So here we see this man asking this great question. Aren't you afraid of your own mortality? In other words, don't you understand who you truly are and how desperate your condition really is? You have broken the law. You are a guilty man, and you know it 
and you are getting justice. But I want mercy. He says to Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? This should be the cry of all of our hearts. Will you remember me in your kingdom? Look at Jesus' response because I think his response is so incredibly profound. Jesus answers him, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Listen to that phrase. Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus says truly to us, He doesn't mean as if a philosophy, but he means a truth, something we hang our hats on. The great truth is that Jesus Christ came to save sinful people. He came to save us. He came to transfer us, as Colossians says, from death to life. And he came that we might have life and have it to the full. Jesus did not come to make your life a little nicer or better or happier or safer or more beautiful. He came to rescue you and I. He came to take us from death and sin into life and forgiveness and eternity. This is his purpose in coming to us. We see in this story the beautiful picture of Christ's power and willingness to save sinners, even one on his deathbed. I think of this phrase, and I think of all the music to my ears that we should hear as it comes to us. It teaches us that Jesus Christ is mighty to save, even the worst, even at the last. Mighty to rescue. No one is outside of the saving embrace and the power of Jesus Christ. I ask you if any man's case could be more hopeless than this guy and desperate. He was a wicked man, this third man, this, uh, the penitent thief, the good thief as some call him. He was possibly a murderer as well. Insurrectionists were known for committing murder. And that's why they were crucified, because they were the worst of the worst. His suffering was a just punishment for breaking the laws, the laws of the land. And as he had lived wicked, he so determined to die wicked. For when he was first crucified, it tells us in the other gospel lessons that this man too also hurled insults against Jesus. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Here's a man who an hour or 30 minutes or a few hours before had been cursing Jesus and is now begging him for forgiveness and salvation. And Jesus looks at him and says, today, truly, you will be with me in paradise. This is the most beautiful picture of his graciousness to us. This man was also a dying man, hanging there, gasping for air, nailed to a cross from which he was never to come down alive. He had no power 
to do anything but to struggle for air. The grave was waiting on him, and there was but a short moment between him and death. But our beautiful Lord says to this man, today, immediately, right now, because you see me as king, you will be in my kingdom. Lastly, Jesus says that his kingdom is a paradise. Today, truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. That conjures up uh, images of like Maui. Hawaii or places like that, but that's actually not the word here. In the Greek tense and used in the Old Testament, the word means garden, God's garden. Think about that. An end of all things image. Right now, you will be with me in the garden where God walks and talks and is present to his people. What great words these are. For you and I today, as we consider who is our king. And today for us starts right now. Let me finish with a couple of questions for us, a couple of thoughts. Are you subtly or overtly trying to play king of the mountain with your life? It pretty much happens to me on a daily basis. How do you understand power? You may say, I'm small. And I'm just a normal person, and I don't have any power in, in life, but the thirst of power affects all of us. It is the curse of humanity. We all want power and control. In other words, we all really want to climb a clump of dirt and say, inside, I'm in charge. I'm in control. And this is exactly what we see with Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent promise to them is this. You shall be like God, in control and in power. And they couldn't resist its temptation to take that. We may think this way. If I had power and control over my life, my circumstances, my relationships, I would be happy. If I had power. That's the adult version of King of the Mountain. It's an Edenic event, Adam and Eve, the curse. But you and I know deep down inside, power is elusive and will never save us. It's Christ's power and Christ's kingship and Christ's rule that sets us free. So that's the first question. The second one is this. Would you rather live in the kingdom? Well, yes, right? None of you is going to raise your hand and say, no, I choose power. We'd all say, I'd rather live in the kingdom then. And to live in the kingdom is essentially a transfer of power. I take the power that I thirst for and I transfer it. And I hand it to the person who rightly and truly deserves it and has it. And that's Jesus. I give it to him. I seek to follow him. And even as I fail, I learn what it means to keep following him. This is the life of a Christian. I try and I stumble and I fail 
and I try again. And it's in the trying and the striving that I see God is with me. His presence has never left me. But to engage in following, I have to, clear, I have, to have this clear understanding of life in the kingdom of God. And here it is. If Jesus is your king, if Christ the King Sunday is true for you, then your life will be marked by a followership of Jesus rather than the pursuit of power and control. That's life in the kingdom. When we take communion weekly, sometimes we say this prayer. We say this, that Jesus may evermore dwell in us and we in him. This is how you know Christ is king. Just think about this with me for a second. Do you feel that you are dwelling in Jesus? Do you enjoy him? Do you seek him? Do you follow him? Do you desire him? Do you pursue him? Do you worship him? Do you love him? That's how you know that he's king over your life. Because that's what it means to live in his kingdom. Do you feel that he's dwelling in you? I was telling Angela Kay, um, been a very difficult season. A lot of pressure and stress. A lot of challenges. And life is pretty difficult. But I know God's presence is with me. I know it. I don't feel it sometimes. It's not obvious. It's not overt. It's not written on a sign. I'm with you. But I know his presence is with me. And I know that even trying to follow him, as humbly and fragilely as I do that, pleases him. That's life in his kingdom. That's what it means to make Christ your king. Hear the cry of the thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me as you are in your kingdom today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.